This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Immigration disputes dominated the Supreme Court's docket this term. On Monday alone, the justices heard arguments in two separate cases on the subject. And on Tuesday, the court handed down an opinion that bolstered the power of states to prosecute undocumented immigrants. Joining me is Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight. Isn't immigration the domain of the federal government? Well, yes, June, and this is actually a significant rollback of the Supreme Court sort of epic decision in Arizona versus United States, where it sort of gave this broad proclamation that the employment of undocumented immigrants and the prosecution by states of unlawful employment of undocumented immigrants would be something that just couldn't be in the province of the state. States couldn't take matters into their own hands. And what happened here in Kansas versus Garcia is that the Supreme Court created a gigantic loophole in that decision in two ways. First, it said, because the prosecution was not actually based on lying on the immigration form itself, the I-9, but rather on tax forms, that the state was permitted to make this prosecution, but also because Congress hadn't expressly preempted this prosecution in a statute, that was enough for the Supreme Court to say, well, it's none of our business. The states can do what they want here. This vote was five to four along ideological lines. What was the dissent? Well, the dissent was saying that there was a package of information that an employee gives in order to substantiate that they can legally work in the United States. And that always has a tax form and an immigration form, but that the motivation for lying on both forms is because of immigration. And so because immigration is the reason that the form contains this inaccurate information, that should all be viewed as prosecution for lying about your immigration status, which they believe was preempted under federal law, and that that was already covered under the Supreme Court's decision on Arizona versus United States, which is that states cannot take matters in their own hands and start prosecuting undocumented immigrants for working illegally. But in the end of the day, the five justices in the majority disagreed because they said they were not being prosecuted for lying on their I-9 form. They were being prosecuted for lying on their tax form. And that difference was enough, even though it was a very small distinction, to carry the day here. How many states are actually aggressively prosecuting undocumented immigrants? Well, because of the Arizona versus United States case, this was not a very common thing that was occurring. And even in Kansas, this was not very common. But now this will open the door because every state can prosecute identity theft. Every state has identity theft statutes that if you write the wrong identity or you provide a false social security number, you can prosecute that person. And so the only question was, Can you do that when someone's applying for a job? Because that's usually done for immigration purposes, why people provide this false information. And so now that this loophole has been opened for state prosecutions, I think you will see many states start to take matters into their own hands and make similar prosecutions, not on the basis of the I-9 form, but on the basis of identity theft on any other form that was given to the employer as part of the application package. So then what happens if they're convicted? Are they then, you know, handed over to the feds and deported? 
Well, that's another way that this can happen if you draw this out to the logical conclusion of a person is prosecuted for providing a false identity. Then if the jurisdiction is very active at referring people who've been prosecuted to ICE, they will be turned over to ICE. And then ICE has a basis to remove them, both on account of the fact that they may not have been here legally in the first place, which is its own basis to remove somebody, but secondly, because they've been convicted of an offense involving moral turpitude in this case, which is identity theft. And so it creates a serious problem because it's a way to attract many more people into the machinery of the immigration enforcement and removal system than otherwise existed prior to a couple of days ago. So there'll be sort of safe states and not safe states, like sanctuary states? and Correct. This is part of a larger evolution that I think even the Congress may identify one day about this concept of why not let states sort of take matters into their own hands here with regard to immigration and the states that want to have these very high rigid enforcement barriers can have them and the states that don't want to have these high rigid enforcement barriers can have them too and so it will be interesting and what will be interesting is whether the supreme court will take this view of states rights when the states are doing positive things toward immigrants and we're going to see some cases come out of the ninth circuit soon on the issues of sanctuary jurisdictions and whether funding can be denied for grant funding on the basis of being a sanctuary jurisdiction And so we'll see whether the Supreme Court is going to be consistent or whether they're going to only take the side of enforcement on both kinds of cases. I've been talking to Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight, about the immigration disputes that dominated the Supreme Court's docket this term. On Monday, the justices heard arguments in two separate cases on immigration. One on whether to allow quick deportation of undocumented immigrants apprehended close to the border. Is this a new policy of quick deportation? Well, what happened was in 1996, Congress created this process called the expedited removal process, which says that if someone shows up either at our border or at a port of entry, and what a port of entry is would be like JFK Airport or Dulles Airport in in Washington, if somebody shows up there and they don't have any reason to be there, we don't owe them a whole trial and an appeal in the Court of Appeals and a Supreme Court decision. We don't owe them them any of that. We can just put them into what's called expedited removal and literally put them on the next plane back to the country that they came from. Or if they're coming on the southern border, just literally arrest them and take their body to Mexico. And so that's what's called expedited removal. And the question is, there's these concepts where expedited removal is not to be applied in cases where someone is saying that they're a refugee. And in that case, you have to give somebody the ability to apply for asylum. And so the complication there becomes, in that case, can the individual take a habeas corpus decision if the government is not taking their asylum claim seriously. And so that's what the court was debating here. Tell us a little bit about the plaintiff. He was a a Sri Lankan. Right. So the plaintiff was a member of the ethnic minority Tamil population in Sri Lanka who had been apprehended just inside the U.S. border, and he was seeking asylum. He was saying, I have a fear that if I am removed to Sri Lanka, I will be persecuted on the basis of my minority status. And what happened was the adjudicator who was there at the border 
said that this person is unlikely to qualify for asylum. And so what happens when that happens is the expedited removal order can be executed. And so this person said, but wait a second, what if this person is wrong? Shouldn't I be able to appeal this to a court under the habeas corpus provision? And what happened is all of these cases in the past have failed, but the Ninth Circuit for the first time said, you're probably right. You should be able to appeal this to a federal court judge and say that the adjudicator got the law wrong, if that was in fact true. And so that's what was the purpose of this case is, does a person actually have that right to go to federal court and get that adjudicator's decision reversed? Or is that adjudicator's decision the last word? The justices seem divided over the point of habeas. Yes. And so there was a complication there first in what habeas means, because usually habeas means the right to be released from detention. And here the person wasn't seeking a right to be released from detention. They were seeking a right to get review from a deportation order. So that's the first case. Now, now for 100 years, courts have said you can use habeas to seek review of a deportation order. So it would be a major change if the court says, no, 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 that's not habeas. Habeas is just to be released from detention. So that would be a huge change. But that might be something that this court considers. But more importantly than that, the larger issue in this case that seems to be the more conventional issue is whether this review is permitted by law when the Congress wrote specifically that there is a clause in the law that says if somebody is denied their credible fear adjudication, then they don't get any habeas corpus review. So the Congress wrote that. That was their intention. And so what the Supreme Court is grappling with is, is that constitutional to deny that review? Could Congress actually have done that, or did Congress act unconstitutionally? From the oral arguments, does it appear the justices are divided over this? Right. I mean, we know that there are four justices that are absolutely not comfortable with a scheme that has no mechanism for courts to correct even the most egregious of mistakes. So even if they say they lie or they get the wrong human being involved or anything else, there's no ability to correct that. That's what the Department of Justice is saying. And then we know that Justices Alito and Kavanaugh have very strong concerns about that this is not a real habeas petition. Habeas petitions are only to release people from detention. And so the keys are Justices Gorsuch and Justices Roberts, uh, Justice Roberts on this concept of whether they, the person will prevail and have habeas rights or not. I'm not optimistic because the only court that ever recognized this right was the Ninth Circuit. Every other court had rejected this claim. And so I'm not optimistic that the court will allow this, but we will this this is yet to be seen. Leon, the second case the court heard arguments in was over whether courts can review administrative findings involving claims of torture when non citizens are deported. And Justice Samuel Alito said, All this is very complicated. Explain it to us. So there's a third case that happened this week that had to do with a person who was a criminal person who had no right to be in the United States but said that they could not be deported because they were going to be tortured in their home country. 
And so what happens is in those cases where someone is saying that they're going to be tortured in their home country, they are actually given what's called a removal order, meaning they can be removed to any other country in the world. But the question is, can they be removed to the country that they're claiming that they're going to be tortured in? And so the, this case only involved the issue of if someone is a criminal and the immigration court says you're not going to be tortured, do the federal courts get to review this? Because Congress had said that the federal courts cannot review any case involving certain very hardened criminals, no matter what. But then Congress had also written in another law that it has the ability to review all claims under the Convention Against Torture. So the question is, which of these two laws governs? Is it the one that bars all claims made by people who've committed certain crimes, or is it the one that says, yes, but if what you're seeking is review of your claim that you're going to be tortured, and you're saying that the judge applied the wrong law, that case should be allowed to be reviewed. What was the questioning like? Well, the questioning was very, again, contentious with Justice Sotomayor uh, being very concerned that even the plaintiffs were, or the, the person who was representing the the immigrants in this case were conceding too many points, that she wanted to make it a strong, very robust review that the courts have in this in this doctrine and that they can review every aspect of the Convention Against Torture claim. And other justices were uncomfortable with this concept, like Justice Kavanaugh, who tried to say, hey, look, there's laws that say that these claims can't be reviewed. And Justice Alito was there, too, trying to really push these arguments that the Congress foreclosed this review. So, again, we are going to be looking at Justice Roberts and Justice Gorsuch here as to what the ultimate outcome is going to be. And... Very unusual. Justice Roberts did not ask any questions in this case. And in the last case that we were talking about, Justice Gorsuch didn't ask any questions. Now, I always wonder if that's because they don't want to telegraph the way they're thinking. I mean, I think that's part of the reason they don't ask questions. They also may not want to interrupt the flow of what someone is trying to get accomplished. Justice Roberts has said that on numerous occasions where he thinks his colleagues ask too many questions and the lawyer never even gets to make an argument. And so I know Justice Roberts' uh, position on that is that he wants people to at least be able to make some kind of logical argument and not get peppered by questions all the time. But if he has a legitimate question, he would ask it. And I think Justice Gorsuch probably didn't have a question on, on, on these grounds. I think his questions were asked by all of the other justices, and I think it'll be very interesting to see what he has to say on these two cases. At one point he told the Assistant U.S. Solicitor General, sounds pretty metaphysical, counsel. It's like the Holy Trinity. What was he referring to? Well, I think that the issue here is the fact that there is this concept that the government is trying to make, which is they're trying to say that the review is not permitted of the Convention Against Torture claim because it is the same thing as reviewing the order of removal. And so that's all one thing, just like the Holy Trinity is supposed to be one thing, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that this is all one thing, the order of removal and the CAT decision, the Convention Against Torture decision. And what the plaintiff was saying is, no, those are separate things. We are understandably conceding that the person can be removed at this point 
to any country where they won't be tortured. So the removal order is valid. But the question is, can the removal be effectuated to a specific country where they're going to be tortured? And can that case be reviewed? And so they're saying that's separate. That's not the same thing. And so Gorsuch seems to be saying, yeah, that is not the same thing. And claiming that those are the same thing sounds metaphysical. Thanks for being on Bloomberg Law, Leon. That's Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight. And that's it for this edition of Bloomberg Law. Remember, you can listen to all the latest legal topics in the news anytime on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You could subscribe to the podcast or just go to iTunes or Bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show weeknights at 10 p.m. right here on Bloomberg Radio. 